Pastor Mark here, and I'm glad to introduce one of our missionaries that we support here at Broadway. That's Matt and his wife, Bethany, who are in Central Asia. What I want to do today on our podcast, Matt, is just introduce you to our church so that they know who you are in a better way. They know how to pray for you, and uh, they also can support your ministry better. So here's what I want to kind of focus on, Matt. I just want to talk about who you were, your story, let us get to know you that way, and then how God called you, and then kind of what God's doing with you and your ministry now, okay? So let's start off. Who were you? Who was Matt? What is the story behind your life? Well, um, I was born and raised in small town, southern Illinois, uh, which for a lot of people around here, that sounds like it's a long way away. They immediately think of Chicago, but it's actually quite the opposite. We're only about, say, four hours from South Haven, where I'm a, whereas I'm about a five-and-a-half-hour drive up to downtown Chicago, so not too far off. Um, my dad was a lawyer and um, was there all the way up until when I was 18, went to Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, and while I was there, I met Bethany, who had come from Broadway, where she grew up. She was at Union as well. She was a year older than I was. And during her senior year, we started dating, um, but she was on a path that led to her moving overseas with the International Mission Board to serve as a journeyman missionary for two years in Tanzania. So when she graduated, she spent my senior year at Union and my first year of law school in Tanzania serving with the board. While she was in college at Union, she'd gone on a short-term trip to Honduras and really felt like the Lord was calling her to to live her life overseas serving Him. Um, and so she went in the, on that two-year term just to see what that was going to be like. When she got back from that in 2006, we got married in December of 2006 here at Broadway. Brother Bobby married us, and she concluded she didn't feel released from the call that God had put on her life, but she concluded that she was supposed to marry me, and I did not feel like I was called to live overseas, so that was going to look different. Maybe it would look like short-term trips, maybe it would look like going, um, supporting other people, going longer term, and so... Um, I had come to know the Lord as as a small boy. I was six or seven years old the first time I understood. Uh, I mean, started basically with the Ten Commandments. I saw the holiness of God and my sin in light of it. Understood the penalty of that sin to be death and eternal separation from God and, and repented and put my trust in Christ. But really, it was over the course of probably the next 20 years that I was always growing in my understanding of what it meant for Jesus to be not just my Savior, but to be Lord of my life. Um, I remember one time in high school here in Romans chapter 12, what it meant to be a living sacrifice and and understanding that I, I had to make a conscious daily choice to stay on the altar. Living sacrifices have a unique ability to get off the altar and run. Dead sacrifices can't do that. And so um, began to understand lordship to mean making that daily choice to stay on the altar. And, and so even as I was marrying Bethany, finishing law school, starting the practice of law, I was trying to live my life with that understanding that my life didn't belong to me. It belonged to the Lord. I was thankful for the great things he was doing in my life. Um, my dad, like I said, my dad was a lawyer. And so when we moved back to Illinois, I was able to actually join his practice within a couple of years, had become a partner in the law firm, 
And I think it would be safe to say had had realized, had achieved childhood dreams within just a couple, three years of, of starting my professional life. I thought we were on the exact trajectory that I had always dreamed for, and so I assumed always what God had planned for our lives. So uh, tell me a little bit about, you, you didn't mention law school, all that kind of stuff. Um, can you kind of go there? I can. I think I probably skipped it because I try to block it out. Because um, so. I think that's really probably the most interesting part of your story <laughs> is, you know, you were involved in law practice, and through that, God kind of brought you to this place, bringing you back around to where your wife was originally yeah. to do missions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. So I often tell people, um, my, my wife Bethany is such a wonderful woman that when she walks with Jesus, I have to run with Jesus just to try and keep up. Um, and so that was obviously the same in terms of when she was called compared to when the Lord worked in our lives but uh, as a family. But in terms of law school, it was, it was a, a grace from God. It was certainly difficult, but it was a grace from God that Bethany was serving in Tanzania for my first year of law school because first year of law school is one of the most difficult academic experiences that that anyone can go through in the American university system. Um, hours and hours of reading and studying every single night, only to attend hours and hours of grueling classes every single day where it seems like the professors are specifically bent on embarrassing you, um, testing the limits of your reasoning skills, testing the limits limits of your public speaking skills as they question you before the class. And so it was a grueling time. Um, it was also a grueling and challenging time in terms of of my, my faith because I never fell into a period of, of doubting or testing, but I found myself alone. Uh, law school is very much a highly secularized place. I was at a state school in particular, and so so that certainly contributed to that as well. But but my closest friends in law school, um, one of them was a Mormon who I regularly shared the gospel with him and told him I believed he was in a cult. Um, one of them was a nominal Catholic um, who drank more than he read or studied. Um, and, and so even having not having the close-knit circle of Christian brothers and sisters during that season of life presented some unique challenges. At the same time, I found myself at a church in that small college town that had one of the best Bible preachers, best expositors of God's Word I've ever heard. And so I showed up there in the fall semester of my first year of law school. And on January 1st, I remember walking in and he stood up before the, the congregation. He said, well, brothers and sisters, I've done the math. And if I start with Genesis 1-1 today, it should take me 26 years to preach through the whole Bible. And so he actually recently celebrated finishing the Old Testament, which that's, that took him about 14 years, so I'd say he's on pace. Um, but I have good memories of him in that season. I didn't know what the Lord was doing, but he, he really was equipping me in how to handle the Word for myself. He, he was helping us learn how to see Jesus on the pages of the Old Testament. I remember coming on an Easter Sunday morning, and you know, you're pretty much expecting the normal Easter Sunday text, resurrection, maybe 1 Corinthians 15. We're not getting too far out there um, on Easter Sunday morning. And he opened up to Leviticus 16 because that's where he was. 
in his walk through the Old Testament. And on that morning, he preached the parallels between the Day of Atonement and Easter. And I began, it was like the scriptures came alive to me in, in a different way during that season of life. At the same time that I was lacking Christian fellowship because of the environment I was in, I was growing in my ability to handle the word for myself. And I didn't know why. I didn't know what the Lord was doing. But he, even then, I think he was preparing me. One other thing this pastor did was he, because he was teaching through Leviticus, he he went to the men in the congregation. There's about six or seven of us. And he said, he said, there's, I need y'all's help. I need y'all to meet with me on Tuesday nights, study the text this week for what we're going to preach next week, because it's hard, it's difficult, and, and I need more eyes on the page. And so what I realize in hindsight is that I don't think he actually needed the help as much as he wanted to bring us in and model before us what it looked like to be digging into the Word, how to study, prepare a sermon. And the interesting thing was about three years after that season, six of the seven men that were in that room were in pastoral ministry of some kind around the country. None of them had been on that track when he asked them, but the Lord changed their lives and sent them. And the seventh man in that room was me, and I was a divorce lawyer. (laughs) So I often joked with him, like, I think you missed the mark, brother. I'm not sure why I was in that room. Okay, so let's talk about this. You guys had what many people would consider the American dream brewing. You were a partner in your dad's law firm, small town. You were building a new home. The future looked bright from where you were standing, where you were sitting. But in the process of all that good, God called you. So explain to us about that call. So there's a there's an event that comes in, in 2012, spring of 2012, but I'll get to that in a second because I really, over the years, I've realized that for me, I really believe this started in the fall of 2011. Um, in a small town law firm, you find yourself, you know, representing the guy who got a DUI this last week, and because of that, his wife's upset, and they get a divorce the next week, and you really find yourself at the bottom in the pit of everybody's life. And the really frustrating thing was to be involved in these darkest hours of people's lives, knowing that the gospel is the the solution to all of these things that they're dealing with. They need to meet Jesus and he can change things. And that not being what I'm supposed to do in that professional capacity and feeling hindered and limited. And so I believe the Lord began to grow in me um, I tell people a holy discontentment. In general, I think discontentment is a, is a problem, but I think that the Lord was creating this holy discontentment in me because, like you said, everything on the surface looked like the American dream. It looked like what we should be most excited about. But this holy discontentment was growing in me where it didn't matter how well things went, it just didn't feel right. I wasn't where I was supposed to be. And um, we were looking to buy a piece of land. Um, February of 2012, we were looking to buy some land to build that bigger house that we had been planning. Um, we had already built one house. We had paid it off in five years. Like We were on that kind of track in terms of what the Lord was doing in my law practice. And and I felt like, okay, this is just what we're doing. And we couldn't find land. I mean, we lived in a rural area of Southern Illinois. There was land everywhere, but there was not land that had utilities available. There, were not, there was not land that had street access. And and so it just felt like there was a road stop, a roadblock everywhere we turned. And so 
about the same time, um, I registered for a conference in Louisville called Together for the Gospel. So it's a pastor's conference. It happens every couple of years. And all of my best friends um, at that time were from, uh, were pastors. They were, they were pastoring area churches and they had gone to this conference in 2010. And when they came back, I found myself on the outside of every inside joke. And so for all of the wrong reasons, I registered to go to Together for the Gospel 2012, basically just to hang out with the guys. That's what I, I mean, I knew there'd be great times of worship, good Bible preaching, but it was a pastor's conference. It didn't apply to me. I, I was going to hang out with my friends. And so I got there, actually, I remember I got there the first night, the guy stood up, he preached from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 about um, the the struggles of pastoral ministry, and he really drew an emphasis on on this one point where he said that death is at work in the life of the pastor, so that life can be at work in the in the body in the church. And I literally remember leaning back in my chair, saying, "Man, I feel so bad for my friends that this is this is what the Lord's stuck them with um, that death has to be at work in the life of the pastor for the life to be at work in the church." And but I was so thankful that it didn't apply to me, and so. A couple nights later, a guy by the name of David Platt, many of you have probably heard of him, he stood up and uh, preached a sermon entitled Divine Sovereignty, the Fuel of Death, Divine Devotion to Global Mission. And we looked at Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 7, where, where we see this multitude coming out of every nation to worship the Lamb who has been slain and now has conquered and and, and really emphasized that, that God is sovereignly accomplishing his purposes in the world to redeem a people for himself with or without us. He does not need our help, but he is gracious and kind enough to invite us to participate in his missionary endeavor in the world. I'd grown up my whole life in, in faithful Southern Baptist churches, preaching the Great Commission, giving to Lottie Moon, like this was front and center. I didn't hear anything new from the mouth of David Platt that evening. But in my heart, the Lord was telling me very clearly, your life is never going to look the same. Mm. I was a trial lawyer. Um, My preferred place was in a courtroom, arguing in front of a jury, arguing in front of a judge. And, And by God's grace, I was good at it. And so I began trying my case that night. I didn't sleep much that night. I began trying my case. The Lord had given me far too much in terms of secular success to actually be asking me to walk away. Rather, I'm at a conference, having an emotional high. David Platt is an exceptionally good speaker. He's persuasive. And this is really going to pass in a couple of days. Like, I just need to calm down, get the conference over, go back to work on Monday. Um, That was what I thought. It was just an emotional high. You just had to get through it. Right. Yeah. So that was what I convinced myself over the course of about 24 hours. The next evening, evening, a guy by the name of John Fulmer stood up to give his testimony. John was a lawyer from South Carolina. Hmm. He had gone on staff with his United States senator, moved to Washington, D.C., and was jogging in the neighborhood one day, saw a sign for Capitol Hill Baptist Church, and decided to go in on Sunday to network with the conservatives. That was John's words. Hmm. John had grown up in South Carolina his whole life, had actually grown up in churches in South Carolina his whole life, but he'd never heard the gospel, and he had never come to faith in Christ. That changed when he heard the gospel preached by Mark Dever at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. Within a few months, he'd given his life to Christ. Within a few years, he left the practice of law 
left the pinnacle of success in the practice of law working on Capitol Hill to go to seminary. Came back from seminary, served at that church in Washington, D.C. for a number of years before the Lord called he and his family to move to the Arabian Peninsula and plant one of the first evangelical churches on the Arabian Peninsula. And so as John shared his testimony that evening, it became clear to me that my my argument that I had too much in terms of secular success just dissolved, and I knew that we were supposed to go. Um, Flashback to a couple evenings before when I'd heard David Platt's message, I had texted my wife and said, God just used David Platt to ruin my life. <laughs> I am undone. Ruin the American dream. Yeah. And and her reaction, um, like I said, i got to run to try to keep up with her. Her reaction was much better. I don't think the Lord had ever really released her from this call that she had to go to the nations. And so she immediately had just an excitement at what the Lord was doing in my life and what that meant for our family. And so that was how we were called. Um, in terms of how you how you get from that to Central Asia, it that was a journey in and of itself. Um, we we just assumed that we would head back to to Southeast Africa where Bethany had served before because that's all we knew that it looked like. Um, we were familiar with that. I'd done short term trips there, and so that that was all that we knew missions to look like. And so we started down that path. We have both grown up Southern Baptist our whole lives, have appreciated uh, the International Mission Board and the way they do things. And so we knew that we wanted to go with the IMB, and um, that meant picking up some seminary classes part-time as I continued to practice law. Um, so I was doing master's-level work um, in seminary while I continued to practice law while we were in the application process with the board. And we finally got to a, they call it a candidate conference, a job conference, where you go and you hear about the different opportunities, the different positions in the world. And we came in just knowing we were going to Africa. And then we found out that the only places left in Africa that we're sending people are out in the middle of the bush. You're 500 miles from the next you know, English speaker. You're 500 miles from running water and electricity. And my family doesn't like to camp for fun. Mm-hmm. We certainly weren't going to thrive camping for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. And so felt like that was the Lord saying, not that. And had somebody tell us that, well, the, the biggest hole of darkness on the planet are the billion people that live in the subcontinent of India, South, South Asia. And so we went, we started looking at opportunities there, and, and everybody we met, they kept saying, now, what, what's your background? You were, you were a lawyer? How did you get in here? Um, and, and over the course of a day, had several people tell us, with credentials like that, we need you to go look at Central Asia. Uh, these are all Muslim countries. You can't get in without some some creative access, some legitimate businesses and, and organizations that you run in order to establish and maintain your presence there. And so we went to a meeting for jobs in Central Asia. One of the first ones we heard mentioned resonated with me so clearly. It was about a people group I learned about when I was in college. And, and the Lord just spoke clearly and said, that's... It's where you're going. And so over the course of a couple of months, he was gracious to confirm that in Bethany's heart as well. And so um, January of 2014, we moved to Central Asia. And you've been there. Your primary focus there, I want to talk about in just a moment. But I want to make this clear to the listener who may be saying, where in Central Asia? And what is this guy's name? 
Well, we're being intentionally discreet Mm -hmm. because as you said earlier, in order to get into these countries, you have to have certain credentials and certain reasons to get in. They're not just going to let you come in and share the gospel. So we're saying Matt and Bethany. We're not saying your last name on purpose. Mm -hmm. We're also saying Central Asia because that's big enough, a a large swath of land, Mm -hmm. large enough, to help just kind of maintain security and brevity and discreetness. Mm-hmm. Anything you want to say about that? Yeah, it it definitely presents some some challenges in communication. We we very much feel like the great commission was given to the church to complete. And so we don't like to ever present in a way that looks like we're saying, well this is what this is our great commission and we'll just tell you a little bit about it. Like no, it belongs to the church. But in order to be able to live where we live and do what we do, we have to be sensitive about the ways and times and means by which we communicate what the Lord is doing. And, and so this, you know, this medium, um, as valuable as it is, is going to be on the Internet and presents a real threat to our security situation if it's got too many of the puzzle pieces pieces in place at one time. So we we talk about a puzzle being put together on the table and if you don't want the whole picture to show up, you better hide a couple of the pieces. And so you can have our first names but not our last names. You can have Central Asia but not the name of our specific country and region um, so that if somebody with the wrong intentions finds this podcast or finds any other medium of communication that we're using with y'all, they don't have all the pieces. They can't put it all together and say, aha, that's who they are. That's what they're doing. Yeah, so intentionally discreet. Mm-hmm. And, and as you mentioned, that's frustrating to you because when you go to a church mm-hmm. and you're trying to tell the church this is what God is doing and this is what God is doing through us and our ministry, you can't really share the whole story. Right. You know, so the joke around here when I, you know, I'm new and when I came People were telling me about our missionaries, and they would say you, and they would say, you know, he's somewhere. I don't know, some some undisclosed country. Good. And that's that's all anybody really knew. Good. So when, <laughs> when you and I sat down for lunch and we got to know one another, you know, I realized very quickly this brother is like-minded. I mean, he, he's got a really good theological head on his shoulders, and, uh, you know, his story is incredible, just what God did. You know, I was also at Together for the Gospel 2012. Now, I never met you, didn't know you. Wouldn't it be ironic if we sat next to each other and didn't even know in that large arena mm. or past each other or whatever the case may be? Uh, but, you know, I remember that sermon. And it's neat to hear your story and how God called you and your wife and your wife is originally from this church. Mm-hmm. So here we are supporting someone that grew up here that is sharing the gospel. That's such an inspiring story. The church needs to hear people within the body are out, you know, sharing the Great Commission globally. I mean, I think about you guys. I also think in a region of the world where John Fulmer is, mm-hmm. is another one of our church members, Nick Manley. Uh, not Nick, uh, Josh Manley. Uh, Nick's his brother. Right. Uh, Josh Manley is in uh, is in, in Dubai, mm-hmm. you know, planting a church from Broadway, sharing the gospel globally. And I just think about how the Lord has graciously used Broadway 
on a global scale. And what's so exciting is it's not just giving to a cooperative program. It's literally members of this church are going out and sharing the Great Commission and the gospel globally. And you guys are part of that, Matt and Bethany in Central Asia. Let's talk about what you're doing just really quickly in Central Asia, because people might say, okay, great. He's in a country where he has to be discreet. Well, what 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 is your mission? What are your goals? What are you trying to do there? So our our vision of what the work looks like is very clearly defined as eva- evangelism, church planting, disciple making. Like that is what we are there for. Um, there are there are varied perspectives um, across the across the spectrum of sending organizations of what constitutes mission. Um, we are very thankful that both personally and also organizationally with the International Mission Board, we have a clear conviction conviction that mission is gospel proclamation and church planting. There's lots of good ministry to be done in the world, digging wells, running orphanages, helping people. Um, And those are good things. And Jesus is the one who told us to preach and heal. And so we want to participate in preach and heal. But what we have found over over the years that we've been doing this is that there's an unfortunately large number of, of missionaries in the field who, who do a lot of healing and very little preaching. Mm. They do a lot of ministry and virtually no mission. Wow. And so for us, it is primary that we keep our eyes constantly fixed on gospel proclamation, disciple-making, church planting. Mm-hmm. What that looks like contextually for the first six months was pure language study because we couldn't even buy apples, let alone lead someone to Jesus. And so, um, and honestly, not just the first six months, um, but that's the first window that comes to mind because we had our our first language tutor, by God's grace, was also fluent in English. And so even in those first six months, as as I was meeting with him, he was meeting with our family and teaching us uh, language, we spent probably half of our language lessons with him asking questions about the gospel in English because he had heard bits and pieces in various ways. He learned early on that we were Christians, and so he wanted to hear the truth. And so evangelism started long before I could greet anyone in the market or buy fruits and vegetables. I was able to share the gospel in English, saw this local brother come to faith. Within a few months, he had led his best friend to faith. Wow. Um, just thankful to see an opportunity to for the Lord to work early, um, even in our weakness and our inability to speak the local language, mm-hmm. run across somebody who could speak English who the Lord was drawing to himself. And so a good reminder that it is his work, not ours. Our, our measure of success is faithfulness. Are we seizing the opportunities? Are we proclaiming the gospel? We're not responsible for fruit. Mm-hmm. We're responsible to be faithful. And so... Yeah. Um, so you're big on evangelism, obviously, yes. and I love what you said, church planting, the local church. I mean, when I read Ephesians, the the message I get very clearly is God uses the church, mm-hmm. Ephesians 3.10, you know, through the church. And so I'm thankful that you're doing that, and I, I love your, your emphasis. A lot of people are doing ministry, but they're not really doing proclamation of the word. They're not really teaching they, they don't really have strong local churches. And mm-hmm. if you don't have a strong local church, you can have schools and you can have medicine and you can have people giving out water bottles and all other kinds of things. But ultimately, it, I think it doesn't matter. The local church is the ultimate means that the Scripture gives us that God uses 
to spread his love, proclaim his word, and be the the greatest evangelistic tool mm-hmm. is the church gathered. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I'm thankful that you're doing that where you are. Now, do you have, a, is it an underground church? Have you gotten that far? I mean, it, can you can you share anything about that? If yeah. you can't, that's fine. But you know, our listener might be thinking, okay, well, well, what kind of a local church do you have? Like, yeah. do you have one in a shopping center where you open the door and people can come, or is this more discreet? How does it work? It has varied in its manifestation over the six or seven years that we've been walking um, this road. In the beginning, what we found is that Muslim background believers have serious trust issues. Uh, the stakes are high for them. Coming to faith in Jesus is the equivalent of signing your own death warrant in, in the kinds of context that we live in. And so so for them to do that, um, they've, they've really got a high cost to count, and it only goes up when they begin to be more public about that by meeting with other believers or be meeting with other people who say they're believers and they don't trust them. And, and so for the first several years, we were just trying to get you know, from zero to one, just trying to get two local believers to be willing to meet each other and, and study the word together. And so uh, that was a challenging season. Um, we had been there for, uh, I think, probably almost three years before we um, really saw something that, that kind of got some traction. We, we had decided to have a Christmas party uh, in our home on Christmas Day. Uh, we At that point in time, we were walking with um, about 15 or 16 local believers, but all in individual relationships, like they, they wouldn't mix with one another. And so we decided to have a Christmas party, and we were going to invite all the local believers. We were going to tell them we're inviting other believers, but it's in our home and, you know, you know, kind of provide some cover for that, for that setting. And so, because again, this would have been legally dangerous for them and us. Yeah. Yeah. And so we did that. Um, we, we invited them of the 16, seven came. Um, and so we, we ate a meal. We, we sang some Christmas carols that we taught them, English Christmas carols. We, we sang some, some locally translated worship songs and I opened the word uh, to Matthew chapter 2 and, and taught a short Bible study on the visit of the Magi because uh, history tells us pretty clearly that the Magi come from this region of the world um, and they were actually priests of another religion who looked at the stars, saw that that, that prophecy from the Old Testament had come true, <clears throat> that there was a king in Israel, excuse me, and so they'd come to visit because of that. And so um, connected those dots for them. And to a person, all seven of them that day, as they left their ho- our house, I said, why can't we do this every week? Is this just for Christmas or can we do this every week? Not, not the meal. That's too much work for your wife. But can we just meet every week in your home, study the Bible together, sing songs about Jesus, and pray? Yes. Yes, we can. That is called a church, a gathering. Right. You know, we take that simple thing for granted here in the States. But what you're saying, it's so pure, so raw, so New Testament even, so mm-hmm. Book of Acts, yeah. where believers wanted to come together to be yeah. encouraged. They wanted to come together as they saw the day approaching, you know, to stir one another up. That's what church is. Yeah. And so that group began meeting weekly in our living room for the next year that we were there um, before we we took a a stateside time in the U.S. that ended up being a little longer uh, than we had anticipated. And so every week 
uh, was preparing and preaching in the, in the local language, uh, shepherding that body largely on my own because we had teammates at that point, but um, linguistically they had not been there as long. They weren't quite at that point yet. And so over the course of that year, got another one of them kind of trained up and ready so that then we went on stateside, that, that group continued to meet. Um, that family moved into our home. They continued to meet in our home. Um, one point, um, so you were asking, is it underground, is it public? This is where it gets strange. So it, it would have qualified as an underground church at that point. Um, but the security police, um, it's basically the local equivalent of like the FBI, um, got wind of what was happening, um, showed up at the door one time during the church services, happened while we were actually in the U.S., um, showed up and said, this is illegal, you can't do this. Um, religious groups have to meet in official religious buildings. Um, and so they all, they offered an argument as to why that was, you know, for, for safety reasons, claiming that this is what ISIS sleeper cells would do. I mean, they, you know, religious, like Islamic radical groups don't meet at the mosque. They meet in people's homes. And so if you're a religious group meeting in a home, you made them nervous. So uh, they were able to, uh, we were able to make arrangements to rent uh, one day a week from an international church that's there in our city. And so started meeting there to, to satisfy the authorities and they were, they were fine with that. They left us alone. Um, and so still today, uh, every single week, the, the church gathers there. Um, we've actually kind of expanded out to we have our services are on Friday mornings because that's the, that's the day off in the Islamic culture. Um, and then on Tuesday nights, the men and women gather separately for, for Bible study and discipleship. And, um, and it's, I mean, the Lord is blessing it. We're seeing him work even in 2020 as broken as this year has been in seemingly every way. It's been a good reminder that the Holy Spirit is not bound by, uh, quarantines and, and restrictions. We've seen, we've seen people, over the last year being drawn to the Lord and and then being drawn into relationship with us or finding us through just the craziest of means because they've heard a little bit and they need to hear the rest and they can't find it anywhere else. And and so um we you know we end up with messages on Facebook for people we don't know saying, Hey, I've I've read a little bit online, I want to know about Jesus and I heard from a friend that you can tell me. Wow. That's so how the Holy <laughs> Spirit is drawing people. Yeah. Yeah. Moving in people. So ways we can just quickly pray for you in a general sense. Whenever anybody picks up this podcast, listens, and says, I want to pray and support that ministry. We can pray for your family mm-hmm. because obviously, you know, you're from the States. So any transition, even though you've been there years now, still creates challenges. Mm-hmm. Challenges yeah. with family. Pray for your evangelism. Sounds like you're you're blessed in that area. God is doing evangelism, and pray for the local church that's gathered there. Yes, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So you have some pastor elders that are there at the church now since you're away, mm-hmm. and they're keeping it going. Yes. Yeah, so we're this trip to the States is a vacation for us. We've been here for a couple of weeks. we got a couple of weeks left. Um, but uh, one of the things that, that from, the, from the onset of the church plant in our living room, we've, we've wanted to build into the DNA of the church is a biblical model of a plurality of elder qualified men leading the church. And so, uh, so that means for this season, um, in the absence of local 
elder qualified men, myself and one of my teammates, another guy that works with the board, um, have been serving in that role on a temporary basis. And so even when one of us takes a four-week trip to the U.S., there's still um, you know, an elder qualified pastor preacher there to, to keep things going because the church is not built around one man. Um, the church focuses on the man, Christ Jesus, and is led by a plurality of biblically qualified elders. And so um, we're also, you can also be praying, people can be praying for local leadership, local men who are elder qualified to rise up as well, because we don't feel called to, to pastor this church, um, even in the midterm, let alone the long term. This is a short term, like we need to do this to, to model to them what it's supposed to look like and to train up those who need to be doing it. Um, but we are very like strongly convicted. We want local leadership because that's a lot easier to multiply and replicate than it is to try to send one of us over from over here. And so constantly part of what we're doing in the church context and also in discipleship one-on-one relationships is trying to see these men come along in a way where they are growing in their own personal faith, growing in their walk to where they're going to be qualified to serve um, as, as leaders and elders of the church. Awesome. Well, brother, I'm thankful for what you're doing. I'm thankful for your ministry. Matt and Bethany serving in Central Asia, supported um, through the missions ministry of Broadway Baptist Church. Amen. Thank Thanks, you, brother. brother. Praise the Lord.